Hey everybody, welcome to Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mark, and we are joined by author Robert Duncan. He's led a pretty rock and roll life. He saw the Beatles live, walked out of the Who on their first U.S. tour, and played 22 with Mitch Ryder. One of his first writing assignments was interviewing Kiss on the same day Paul Stanley got his infamous rose tattoo. He became the first managing editor at Cream Magazine, working with the legendary Lester Bangs, and wrote the first ever unauthorized biography of Kiss. His amazing story of how he met his wife led to a honeymoon with Blue Oyster Cult. And he's also serenaded Sammy Hagar and Liza Minnelli. Go buy his novel, Loudmouth. It's hard to put down. Follow him on the socials to get news about his new books and possible movie. Follow us at Performance ANX. Subscribe, rate, and review. And buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety. Merch is available at performanceanx.threadless.com. Now let's dig into Robert Duncan on Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hi, this is Robert Duncan. I'm the author of Loudmouth, the novel. I'm a former managing editor of Cream Magazine, which seems to carry some currency these days. Uh, I'm in that Cream documentary, so go watch that. Uh, but you can uh, you can buy Loudmouth, my novel, in either paperback, um, ebook, or uh, audio form at uh, just about anywhere there is a uh, they sell books. And uh, if you, again, if you've never read a book, I'll read it to you on the audio book. Uh, but uh, I, I've had such a great time here on performance anxiety. Uh, which, uh, which I, I, I have had no anxiety on performance anxiety. I've enjoyed it so much. And so thank you to, am I allowed to say thank you to Mark? Thanks. Thanks to Mark. And, uh, I, I, I'm going to beg him to come back someday. Well, I'm a big fan of, uh, Morgan gear. Oh, me too. Yeah, he's so much. He, well, he's who gave me your name, and he's he's just fun, and he's a really nice guy. We, we did a uh, backyard concert with him when he was. He called me at because we used to at our office. We we have a bar of all things, nice private bar, and we uh, decided that. And we did, do, did a bunch of shows, and, and one of them we did a bunch of. Oh, we had a bunch of the folks from Fluffin gravy rec- records up in uh, Portland and, yeah. and Morgan was one of them. And so I got friendly. And then when he came a few, and then it, that was like three or four years ago. And then he was coming out West and he called me and said, Hey, uh, you still doing those concerts? And I said, uh, no, I said, but I've been thinking about doing a backyard concert. I said, would you be into that? Yeah, he would. And he was, and he, he stayed for a couple of days and we had a great time. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it was really fun. We got to be good friends. So. Yeah, he uh, he came. And people loved him, too. At the, end, at the show, people are like, oh, my God, this guy's so great. Oh, he is. He's really talented. And uh, I got his uh, his PR guy got up with me and, and was like, hey, you want to interview this guy? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. Sounds good. I'll, I'll talk to anybody. So uh, I reached out to him like a the day before a day of and uh just because I, I had a question about something or other, and we just ended up, I'm at work, and we just ended up texting the, like the entire day before yeah. we even got on the show. So, you know, we got real comfortable with each other. <laughs> and then uh, 
about, I'd, I'd say a month later, he was, I'm in Virginia and yeah. he was coming up to Baltimore to tour and, and you know I'm, I'm about 75 miles due west of dc so i'm not too far from baltimore so yeah. he's like yeah, i'm gonna be at this dive bar in baltimore so uh, you know if you get a chance to swing by i'm like uh, yeah i'll make it that definitely so went up there and uh hung out before the show grabbed a beer he came up to the show i took a whole bunch of pictures i used to be a photographer so i took a whole bunch of pictures and uh we hung out for a little while after the show and he's like, man, he's like, this is, he's like, I, I can hang out with you all night, but I got to go to the next show. I'm like, yeah, I got like an hour and a half ride back to my house. So I, I yeah. probably ought to get going anyway, but we've been in touch ever since. Oh, that's good. Well, you're a loyal friend. That's good. Oh, but that's, I loaned him an amplifier for his, his uh, oh, show nice. up, uh, out here. And he had he had to, he had to go back down to Santa Cruz for, for a show after our show. And then he came back up, and I think that's when he spent the night again with the, with the family. Anyways, we had a great we had a great time, and and we drank whiskey and beers and just kind of raised hell. So. That's awesome. Well, he's a great guy. And I got to thank him for getting this in motion because uh, I've been I've really been enjoying reading the book. Oh, good, good, so it's good. Been, it's been really good. really cool book. Well, I said before I got on, I said I said to my wife, I said, "God damn it, I'm hungry." I said. So I thought, well, I'd get, but there was nothing really to eat in the fridge. So I thought, well, I'll Ooh. Drink, drink some fancy Oregon Porter, which is just my favorite. Oh, that is, I like porters. I've, I don't have. Pardon me. No, no, help yourself. I, I was thinking about uh, pour myself a little of the Buffalo Trace white dog. Oh, please do. You know what I was reading yesterday? I was reading about, um, you know, Pappy Van Winkle, that whisk, that, that bourbon. Yes. And when my son turned 21, which is a few years ago, we got him a bottle of 23-year-old Pappy. Oh, wow. And, it was, and, uh, and then, speaking of Morgan Gear... And he, my son doesn't really drink much, and but he he thought it was fun, and he's yeah. into the and um, but you know, and then he moved. He lives in Asheville now. He knows he knows Morgan. Oh, cool! And, and in fact, he called me when he moved to Asheville. He says, oh, "I I I met this really cool musician and blah blah blah." And, and I said, "Well, what's his name?" He says, "You wouldn't know him. You couldn't. You didn't know." Him. And I, and he says, I said, no, just tell me his name. And he says, Morgan, Morgan gear. And I said, all right. I said, all right, well just check your email. And I sent him a picture of me and Morgan together. Uh, <laughs> Morgan with his cream tattoo. I see and that photo. When Morgan came here for my son left a bunch of that Pappy Van Winkle and, uh, and we moved to Asheville. And so when Morgan was here at, at late night after his show, we got into my son's, we finished <laughs> off my son's Pappy Van Winkle. <laughs> so, but I discovered that Buffalo Trace owns Pappy Van Winkle now and, and oh. has for like 30 or so years. Really? Uh, there's a new book out about Pappy Van Winkle. In fact, I sent it to my son yesterday, and uh, got a got a really good review. It sounded really good, and, and uh, yeah. So Buffalo Trace, I didn't, I didn't realize. That's that. I didn't know that either. I, lo I love Buffalo Trace. Yeah, I don't. I, I'm sure I've had it, but I just don't remember. Oh, it's Pappy Van Pappy Van Winkle is is fucking good. Though. Yeah, that's good stuff. I had a <laughs> gosh, uh, I I want to say over a year ago now. I had a. Uh, chef on the show, uh, Selena Teo, and she's 
she's awesome. She's been on um, Top Chef Masters and Iron Chef America, and she's Where's got. She, what, what's her restaurant? Uh, it's in uh, Kansas City. It's called the Belfry. She, oh, she used cool. to own one called Julian right there. She's she's a James Beard Award winner. She's just amazing. Yeah. And oh, that's uh, cool. Her, if you ever get to, to Kansas City, stop by because she has got a bar with uh, 350 different types of whiskey. 250 yeah. of them are bourbons. Wow. So, wow. well, I, I, my, my, uh, my family's from the South. So we, we grew up, we grew up drinking what was left over from our parents' bourbon <laughs> when, they, when they went out for dinner after their cocktails. Yeah. Go around and, <laughs> drinks, drinks everything. Well, so speaking of that, so tell me a little bit about. I see you've written a, a novel, so it's not a memoir or an autobiography, but it is very autobiographical. Yes, there you go. There you go. That's, <laughs> that's why you're the writer and I'm the podcaster. Well, <laughs> and, and memoir e, so I get that. You know. yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 the first thing I get from everybody, including all the editors, I tried to uh, peddle it to, was was like, why don't you just make this a memoir? Right. And I said it's not a memoir, and it is a. Uh, and the reason it isn't a memoir is because for, there's many reasons. I mean, the number one reason is I wanted to kind of be able to go with the flow as I'm writing. I didn't want to have to be thinking, you know, I didn't want to have to be looking over, over my shoulder at the facts. Right. You know, I, you know if I'm on a roll here and because, you know, I think it's all about flow in writing as it is in music, as it is in whatever sports. Yeah. Uh, they tell me. <laughs> uh, but uh so so you know that was that was the first thing and and you know but there's other factors like my memoir ain't so good after for all those years of drink i think there's a lot of drinking in the book and it's that's pretty much factual yeah. and uh so my memoir i used to call my friend who i'd been out with and i'd say yeah what happened you know, say, oh, shit, dude, you hear what you did. So I don't ordinarily drink beer at five o'clock. Well, you know, these days I have it. But uh, but um, so so I mean, for those two reasons. Um, and, and you know what? I, I also wanted to have the complete license to uh, leave out the boring parts. You know, so when I at one point, I, you know, it, it had the strange uh, genesis, of the book. But I but at one point when I thought, OK, well, maybe I'm writing a memoir. So I was trying to write the facts and it would be like, oh, well, I moved from Minnesota to San Francisco, back to Detroit, back to here. And I thought, oh, man, I'm boring myself with this. So <laughs> I said, I got to I got to straighten this shit out. And, and it's stuff like. Yeah, I mean, there's stuff that I move locales, and, and then the the not not negligible factor was I wanted to give those who I per- slagged off. I wanted to have a fig leaf to say, well, it's a novel. It's not really you, including the the uh, the really um, abrasive, uh, obnoxious mother. <laughs> my my mother is still alive at ninety eight. Oh wow. Well, I won't. I won't tell her anything about it. Well, she I, she she asked me. She says, "Have you finished the book yet?" No, I haven't. You know. <laughs> and then she had a few um, then a few of her friends. A couple of her friends said, "Hey, Robert's book is out," and uh, and she 
call me up about that. She's and she's getting enough. She's pretty sharp, but she's getting enough off that I get to say, I don't know what they're talking about, yeah. you know. <laughs> and I, she said, well, can can I read it when you do it? I said, no. I said, it's really nasty. She said, well, I've I've read nasty. I've read you know French authors. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, you know, different kind of nasty. Yeah. So I forbade her from reading it. So. Oh man. <laughs> So Can you, you imagine at, at oh. my age, I got to worry about my fucking mother. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Did writing come before music or was music the first love? Well, music, you know, I was always I was always doing both. Okay. I was always doing both. You know, when I remember when I was a little kid, I had a uh, oh, I had a one of those kind of golden books or it's one of those books. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was, it was somewhere second or third grade. And I, and I was, I, I was enough interested in writing that I started writing in the empty pages and the, you know, the, of, of this, this golden book I had. <laughs> and, and, and I thought this will, this will be my book. So I think back on that, I think, wow, you know, that was, I was eight years old or something. So I was doing that. But I always loved music. So when I, you know, got prepubescent, uh, you know, when I was 12 years old, sixth grade, I started playing in my first band and I played and I pretty much haven't stopped. The downstairs of my house here is a recording studio. Oh, wow. Uh, yes. Yeah, so and uh, like I just uh, over the last over the summer, I did the audio book for Loudmouth down there. That, and that's. And that has just come out as of this. Just, just fucking came out. I don't. Yeah, yeah. It came out in in, in Apple. It's going to be on Amazon and Audible and all that. Awesome. But somehow they've got a. They are the publisher said you know they may be waiting for the print stuff to sell out. You know they want to. <laughs> you know it's it's some politics of publishing, but oh, yes, sure. but it's now out as of a few days ago on on Apple books. So I'm excited about it. So I did so, that downstairs. Yeah. We used to I recorded a bunch of records downstairs, my own and others. Oh, and, awesome. uh, so, so somewhere out yes. there, th there is a Robert Duncan enhanced version of pokey little puppy or something. <laughs> well, yeah, I wish I could remember what it was, what the book was supposed to be about. Yeah. Um, uh, Yes. But, so music, is, music has been a, a, a love of mine. And I did have a, you know, in the book, the character has a mother, a grandmother who was an opera singer. I did have a yeah. grandmother who was a pretty well-known touring opera singer. Oh, wow. Not that I ever heard her sing or, you know, they were such a, it was such a grim household that, you know, oh. they never had music on or anything. Oh, so, wow. Uh, I think my, uh, yes, I think my grandparents didn't have the most wonderful marriage, but, uh, but anyway, so so I was really into music, and then you know, and I, I had a much older brother who introduced introduced me. He he had Elvis blasting out of the dashboard of his hot rod. Oh, uh, nice! Which scared the shit out of me as a little kid. <laughs> and uh, and then of course I, I you know I turned twelve when the British invasion hit, uh, and I was completely captivated by the yeah. Beatles, then the Stones, and then the Kinks, and everybody else. And uh, and eventually I merged my, you know, I was a, always a good writer in schools. The only thing I did well at, I flunked math every and arithmetic and <laughs> every year. And um, and every summer had to do summer school. 
And uh, but I was always a good writer. And when I uh, at a certain point, I started writing songs as well, because I think okay. I started as a, as a kid wanting to be a little older than than eight years old. But when I was by the time I was in high school and college, I wanted to be a poet. And so. Uh, OK. And then so then I that I became a songwriter, too. So I've written a whole bunch of songs. And that was my everybody's always like, man, those are good lyrics. I was like. So I had the two things going. So you were so, pretty young when you actually started playing out in bands then, you said. Well, I was 12 years old when I, in, in our first band when we played the, the school assembly. Oh, and we used to play, but, but anytime there was a dance, like, you know, they used to have dances in people's basements and stuff oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we were always, always the band. We were the only band in the in the grade school, so. Uh, oh, and wow. same, <laughs> same in high school, you know. And we started out it was slightly before the British invasion. So we started out playing, uh, instrumentals. We, you know, we played, uh, the ventures oh, and, uh, uh, you know, all that shit. And, and then we graduated to, uh, playing, you know, stone songs and music with and lyrics. All. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. We, we, I, I was early. And, and, and then when I went to, you know, I dropped out of college to play in bands and similar to the character in Loudmouth. So speaking of the character in Loudmouth, he got a chance to go see the Beatles. Or, well, you got a chance to go see the Beatles. Is that that's so did he? Okay, I'm make, I got to make sure I'm getting the things. Right. <laughs> see, this is the weird thing. You I'm, know what? I get completely confused about it, too. I'm like, oh, right. Oh, that's me. I that was, talking about that, <laughs> that was the thing. I wanted to tell you that I, I'm, the book is is really engrossing. It, it's hard to remember that it's a novel and not an autobiography. Well, you know, well there's another thing. You know, when when you read Jack Kerouac's On the Road, you know everybody knows that a certain character is Allen Ginsberg, and, and this is Neil Cassidy, and you know all the names have been changed. Yeah, but it's like I always I, I think who cares. And I also don't think, you know, modern young, young people who may not I'm spitting out my beer, who may <laughs> not ever read this. But they, uh, you know, they don't give a shit. I don't think. No. You know? No, so, not at all. So, so I, I think, well, who cares? So, and the, the editors all said it because they think it's much easier to to market a, a memoir because you can tell it's a true story. Well, I'll, I, yeah, I can see that, I guess. That, that, that's what they think, you know, but I, I also, the publishing industry is so antiquated and, and, and to me out of it. I can't, you know, I, I, so I, it seems to have not hurt the thing. So how, yeah. when, so when did you see the Beatles and how did you get in to see them? Oh, I, I, I well, just like my guy in the book, I, uh, I had a friend who's who's uh, who was kind of my, my kid my age who was he was always the lead guitarist in the band. He he was a great guitar player, still yeah. is, and um, and he was kind of my. I came from Minnesota to New York, and I was a real hick, and he introduced <laughs> me to all this you know, really kind of hipster music okay. and, and talking, so we're 10, you yeah. know, we're in fourth grade, but he was, this kid was really, he's smart and he was just really plugged in. His father was kind of a, they, they, you know, he wasn't, it was Irish mafia. They call him in oh, New York. Okay. And, uh, but he was kind of a 
you know, and he, so he knew everybody everywhere. And he, so he got us, you know, tickets were sold out and he got us, he got us seats in the press box at Shea Stadium in 1966. Wow. August of 1966. I could, so my friend uh, and I, just like in the, just like the characters in the book, took our, I think it was our first ever dates, you know, yes. we took our, we, you know, hey, you want to go see the Beatles? And yeah. you think, you know, at least you get a peck on the cheek or something. Else. Yeah. But there was no, you uh. know. So we were sitting in the press box. And the interesting thing is we were we were the only ones in the press box because the press wasn't really overly interested. In, oh, wow. In, in going to rock concerts. I mean, the Beatles had become a phenomenon, of course, by then. Yeah. But but there was no real, you know, rock press at that time. Right, so, so they weren't being covered at all, really. Yeah, so so the press box was empty at Shea Stadium. Jeez. So that was that was really cool. I mean, you know, the the sonic experience was, you know, you couldn't. It was hard to hear them, and I mean, you could hear, but it was, you know, the screaming, you know, it's insect screams right. of, <laughs> of a million girls, young girls. So so yeah, that was our. Uh, that's how I saw the Beatles. That's when I saw the Beatles. I mean, and it was like they to me, they were the they were the godhead. So it was like, you oh, know, yeah. and, and today I say this in the book, it, it, it feels like sometimes it feels like I say I saw the Beatles and it's like somebody saying, you know, I don't know. They saw, you know, uh, uh, Sarah Bernhardt, you know, or something. <laughs> it just it, I realized to, to uh, younger people, it just seems so ancient. Yeah. And, and the truth is, it is like 50 years ago. <laughs> that, yeah. But it was, you know, it was just what an experience to, just doing it, getting to worship the Godhead in person. Oh, so. yeah. And, you know, and seeing bands that you idolize in person, there's nothing there's nothing like it. And I know I, I heard that you uh, you did get a chance to hang out with one of your heroes at one point. Mitch Ryder. Oh my God, Mitch Ryder. Yeah. Yeah. Mitch Ryder was really, um, he was, you know, he was Mitch Ryder, Mitch Ryder in the Detroit wheels. I don't know how, I, I don't know how savvy the audience is. I mean, I'm not saying they're dumb. I'm just saying they're, they're younger. <laughs> and, uh, maybe. Uh, yeah, maybe. Mitch, Mitch Ryder and the Detroit wheels were just fucking great. You know, the, he was called by some of the King of blue eyed soul. And he had just an amazing voice and an amazing scream. And he did Devil with the Blue Dress on, yep. Jenny Take a Ride, and CeCe Ryder, Socket to Me Baby. Yeah. And they, he was from Detroit, you know. And, and at some point, by the way, he was, he, as the uh, 70s, you know, as he moved into the 70s, he was a very, he was like 19 years old when he was a, a star. Wow. Yeah. So I, I went to see, it was maybe my first concert. I went to see him at the RKO 58th Street movie theater. And it was one of those old fashioned package shows, even to me in 1966 <laughs> uh, or whatever it was, 67. It, it was like, oh, this is kind of old school. Oh, wow. You know, it was yeah. the kind of thing Alan Freed used to do. And, you know, they play uh, the Brooklyn Fox and all this stuff. So this was, this was a package show and they would have like, you know, 10 or 15 acts on it and they would each play like 20 minutes yeah. and they would do three shows a day. Yeah. And yep. you know, so, so we, you know, what, what we were like 13 and we went to a matinee and we went to see Mitch Ryder and, and, and I remember standing outside the 
the thing and kind of contemplating the other bands. Well, one of the other bands is Sam and Dave. We were big Sam and yeah. Dave. Uh, oh, there was a band, that band, the Vanilla Fudge, and they were kind of proto metal band. I like the Vanilla Fudge. Oh yeah, yeah. And I forget who else, but um, there's lots of great bands. And by the way, white and black acts. There was no segregation. You know, oh, yeah. it, it was kind of like AM radio, and which was the dominant force at, at the time. FM hadn't really happened, but but I'm standing outside and I'm and with my couple little you know our little macho prepubescent friends and, and we're looking at the posters the the list of bands and the post pictures of the bands and one of the bands had this guy he had long blonde curly hair and these most beautiful blue eyes and, and I'm the, this was the lead singer in this band and I'm looking at it, I'm thinking like. Oh, no fucking way! This guy, you know, we had never we had never heard of the band. Yeah. They were from England. They were from England, and it was just like that was that was offensive to our emerging machismo. Right. So so we we saw Mitch Ryder and Sam and Dave and all the bands we wanted to see, and then the, the last band to come on, I guess, was uh, was the Who. But we had walked out oh. long before. So that was the Who's oh. first performance in America. Their first tour is they did that like wow. package tour. And now uh, I subsequently became a huge, huge uh, Who fan. But I thought we thought, uh, you know, Roger Daltrey's kind of feminine appearance was just uh, that was an, that was an affront to our <laughs> to our little machismo. Uh, right. So, but anyways, not Mitch. So we saw him there, and then about um, oh shit, it must be you know ten years later or so. I had been I had worked at Cream, and one of the guys I worked with at Cream, Eric Genheimer. He had gone on to play guitar with Mitch Ryder after working at Cream. Okay. And he called me up one day and said, hey, uh, Mitch is coming to town. Called him. His real name is Billy LeVice. So he said, Billy's coming to town. He says, and I told him you'd be a good person to, to show him around. Uh, and nice. have a good time. Mitch liked to party. Okay. So fucking, if I didn't get a call from Mitch Ryder, oh and it was like, <laughs> and like, Oh shit. You know, this is, so we went out with, so I said, yeah, let's do it. Let's go out. And we went out and, um, we, I don't even, you know, I know we went to our bar, our kind of favorite bar. That was a place we lived more than we did our apartment, the, <laughs> right. the bells, of, the bells of hell. And then we went other places and I don't remember any of them because we got so drunk, <laughs> but I know that we wound up, in uh, at about five in the morning at a place called the Venus Social Club and it was an illegal after hours bar oh. and it was actually a literal dive bar where you had to go down steps to a basement oh, and wow. and it was in the kind of the old uh, section of the of Greenwich Village the mafia section there was all the you know there was always a mafia social clubs and all that so this yeah. was the Venus <laughs> Social Club and you actually had to knock on the door and say you know, in, in our case, you had to name the bartender you had come from. So we, you know, Nick sent us, and they let, you, and then they close <laughs> wow. the little thing, and they let you in. Oh my and, gosh! <laughs> and it has so obviously it has booze, but it also has gambling. So, but but the gambling was instead of the, the twenty one blackjack, they had a, a version of it called twenty two. So you oh. had to get to twenty two to win. And you can, I'm not a math <laughs> major, as I said, but God damn, man, you can't imagine how <laughs> impossible it is to, to win. You know, it just fucks your odds up. And then they also had a, um, a wheel of fortune 
where they would spin it. And you know, the guy's just got a little pedal under there. Yeah. He's just, he's just <laughs> making sure you don't win. Right. And, you know, and you're so fucked up at five in the morning that, that you, you know, well, you're disappointed when you have no more money for yeah. boost. But Mitch Ryder, Mitch Ryder loved our night out so much. My my childhood hero, he grabbed me in the middle of the uh, Venus Social Club and said to me, this is the greatest night of my life. And, <laughs> and, and, and it was like, it was, you know, oh, what more could you ask? Yes. What more could you ask? Oh, so, uh, gosh. And he, he, the postscript is he came back about a year later. I called me up, said, "Hey, let's do it again." Blah blah blah, blah. and I'm like, yeah, "I had a, I had a book contract at the time for a, a book called The Noise," and I'm like, "Oh, dude, I passed deadline for my book, and I, I, I just really can't." And I turned down my childhood hero, and uh, he never called me again. He was, he was, I think he was irritated. Oh, he was done with you. Yeah, and I, I loved him so. Much. But when we, I, I apparently had we had the great time that <laughs> we went out. So that was my encounter. Yeah, that was my childhood hero. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. So, at what point did you decide to go and, and pursue writing professionally right. instead of music? Well, oh, and by the way, eventually Mitch Ryder, as the seventies wore on, I was going to say, became was managed by Barry Kramer, who the uh, publisher of Cream Magazine. And in fact, at the very beginning of the Cream documentary, which if you haven't seen, it's it's really good. Um, there's some old, some vintage black and white footage, and they're going around the room. It's the Cream offices, and they're going around the room asking people, uh, you know, who are you and what are you doing? It was an old news footage. And they come to this guy with long hair and a mustache, and I forget if he had a beard, but he says, "Oh, I sell drugs downstairs," and that was that was actually Mitch Ryder because they rehearsed <laughs> in the, they rehearsed in the in the Cream Building uh, oh, back wow. in the day. Oh so, man! Anyway, it's just a, just a weird kind of continuous something or other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, how did I go from writing? Well, I I know how I went from um, music to writing. So I. Uh, you know, I love music, but it was like, and we had a band that was, you know, we had a series of bands and they kept, kept getting better. And then, you know, we were really, it felt like we were on the verge of something good happening. And, um, and then as always happened, you know, the guitar player would quit. Oh, is my girlfriend doesn't like me doing this on the weekends yeah. or whatever. And, and, you know, it would, so the band would always, kind of implode and there'd be a few survivors and then you'd try to find other people. And so, yeah. so the, you know, the umpteenth time this happens and, and at this point I'm like, like 20 years old, I guess. And at the umpteenth time this happens, I'm like, fuck this shit. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go do something I can do without bass players or guitar players or anybody else. Just me. Right. And, um, and I thought, well, I, you know, what am I going to do? And I thought, well, I've always been a good writer. And, you know, they say you should write what you know about, which I, I now know is, is bullshit. But, <laughs> uh, but at the time I didn't, I didn't know anything. So I thought, well, what do I know about? Well, I know about music, which I is also bullshit because <laughs> I later, I discovered that I didn't know a 10th of what these, some of these guys, like, you know, some of these great rock writers yeah. knew, but, um, that's how, and I moved to, and I left New York 
I said, I'm just going to start again. And I went to California and, um, and I stumbled on this guy. I was looking for an apartment. I met a guy named Ed Ward, who was one of the original Rolling Stone editors. Yeah. And, and and that's this whole story in itself. But, um, and he eventually gave me an assignment. Oh man. So what was that assignment? My first uh, assignment from Edward. Oh, I think it was actually, he, he, um, he was uh, at this point. He was freelance, and he was the West Coast editor of Cream. Okay. And he was also the, he was the book review editor for a, a San Francisco City magazine. And he was he did he just he cobbled together all these freelance jobs to make a living. And uh, so I think my first ever you know published piece was a review of of a book, Thomas McGuinn's uh, Ninety Two in the Shade. Oh wow. And, and, and then I think the second thing I wrote for the same magazine was just kind of a little uh, flavor piece about uh, I went to a kind of local small rodeo and <laughs> I wrote about that. But then uh, Ed got me. Oh, he had me go interview. Um, oh, shut up. I can't. I, um, Earl Scruggs. Oh, uh, cool. the great, the great, the famous, the innovative banjo player. Yeah. Who basically just taught. It changed banjo, you know, which is, sounds like a joke, but it's not. Right. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I in- interviewed him, and um, I think that was the third thing I wrote. So that was oh, that wow. was interesting. I mean, you know, he was actually not really a very forthcoming guy. He was, you know, he was a, <laughs> really? kind of a shy, a shy, quiet guy, and uh, it was a boring interview. But, yeah. <laughs> but and then one of the early things I I, I also did. I started, Ed put me on to uh, freelancing for cream and uh, he got me, they wanted somebody to write a story about this new band. They were an opening act at the time and they were coming to San Francisco for the first time. Again, I moved all around the country. So at this point I'm in San Francisco. So that didn't last long but right. the first time. Now I've been here for more than 30 years, uh, 36 years, I think. Wow. Uh, but anyways, he had me go do the story on, on, on this band kiss. And, uh, wow. and so that was one of the first, maybe kind of featurey stories I had. Oh, and, wow. Uh, yeah. But they were still and an I opening thought, act at that time, they said. They were, but they had their, like, their kiss sign, their light up <laughs> kiss sign. And they were, I don't know if they were doing pyro at the time, but they were still, Gene was puking up blood. And, <laughs> you know, they were pretty much doing their headliner act. And I, I, for the life of me, I can't remember who the who the headliner was, but it just jumped in my head. It might have been Fog Hat. Oh wow! <laughs> so, uh, anyways, I went to interview them, and it was the day Paul Stanley had gotten his famous rose tattoo on his uh, oh. shoulder, and he came in. He was late for the interview. Came in. He'd just gotten that, and uh, and you know they they were uh, nice enough, and I thought their show was awful i yeah. thought it was like what are these stupid songs and this uh and this kind of all this showbiz shit i was i was still stuck in the you know authentic my authenticity phase right so uh, it seemed inauthentic but you know hey I mean, people so loved I, yeah, it I, I was like 20 i was 21 i is that when you started to write for cream on a, on a full-time basis after that well i i i uh Again, I will move back to New York and I was freelancing for a few places, including cream. Yeah. And then a guy named John Morthland, who I'd also met through Ed Ward, uh, called me up and said, would I want to 
he was now the interim editor of of uh, of Cream. Okay, and he called me up and said uh, uh, he was going to kind of put it back on the rails after it had become somewhat derailed following the departure of its signature editor uh, Dave Marsh, okay. young Dave Marsh, and uh, so Mortham was needed some help. He called me up said, "Do you want to come and be copy boy at Cream?" And uh, I'm like, fuck yeah! I was sleeping on my friend's couch, yeah. and, I was, and I was broke. And I'm like, you know, as long as it pays something, I'll I'm coming. And I went out right. to Detroit in you know, just coldest, darkest January. And, oh. and John Mort, John Mort of Northland and Lester Banks picked me up in Lester's red Camaro. You know, his his, uh, <laughs> his red, just dirty, falling apart red Camaro, and. Uh, and so I started working there on staff and I, it, it, you know, and I, I started doing shit work, but then I started writing more and more. And then Morthland left and then a couple other editors came and went because, you know, Lester would more or less chase them away. They would say, this guy's unmanageable. And then, you know, with all my, you know, year and a half or something of experience, the publisher, Barry, uh, Barry Kramer said to me, um, took me, gave me a ride home one day and his fancy Lincoln Continental said, you want to be, um, would you like to be editor of the magazine? And I'm like, again, I'm like, um, maybe I'm 22 at this point. And, uh, and, 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 and but I'm a genius because this is what I said to him. I said, (laughs) no, I don't think, I don't think you should make me editor. I think we should give Lester the title of editor. I said, and then you make me, we'll, we'll create this new position, managing editor. And so Lester will have all the honor of being the editor, but he won't have to do anything but do what he does now, which is right. Okay. And, and I'll manage all the shit, which Lester was not going to be capable of. And I'm, I'm not exactly the, a great manager, but I, I was a great manager of people. I understood psychology. I mean, I just had it. it, it I didn't study it i just right i just it's an innate I thing people and then and, and people enjoyed hanging with me and i enjoyed hanging with people and and so i became managing editor lester was editor and it worked like a charm lester and i were really close so uh it just worked like a charm and we lester never you know and i would edit his his copy and everything that was my meteoric rise <laughs> from copy boy to the managing editor. To me, even. Yeah. So yeah. Cream was always like the, uh, the, the funnier, sar- more sarcastic alternative to, to publications like Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone and the, yeah. Was yeah. that, was that the plan from the beginning of the magazine? Just, just to always be, uh, you know, a little more pointed. Well, it was certainly the, by the time I got there, so I got there in like, oh, 75 or something. I started writing for him maybe 74. Okay. Uh, and, and the magazine had been around since 69 or 70. And, and you know, it had this, the original, the guy who founded it uh, wanted it to be like, uh, you know, almost like an, an academic musicological thing, uh, oh, really? you know, with, with radical tendencies. And, it, and so... But he, he, but Barry bought him out and, and, and then somehow found Dave Marsh and, uh, Dave Marsh wanted to make it political. So uh, Dave Marsh was, you know, he was like a white Panther, the, the group in Detroit, which was 
Oh, the, wow. The, the young white hipsters who supported the Black Panthers. Right. They, they were their own kind of group, revolutionary group. Would be, wow. You know, and that was the MC5 were the, the band for the White Panthers and, and, and John Sinclair and all that stuff. So it, Detroit at that time was very political. And, you know, this is the time of the when the uh, the what we called riots at the time, but we might call a rebellion now. And there was there was all that when they burned Detroit down a lot of it. Yeah. And, and so it was a very political scene. And, you know, the auto industry was just starting to hit the skids. Yeah. And, and, and so under Marsh, the magazine became much more political. Okay. But when but, but Marsh Harry, uh, hired Lester. And Lester was, you know, that um, really making fun of everything, that total iconoclasm right. um, in, a, in a satirical way was, was that was really Lester's personality and, and uh, influence. So it was absolutely the case that it was distinct from all the other music magazines and that's why it called itself america's only rock and roll magazine it was distinguishing itself from rolling stone which had kind of moved off into putting movie stars on the cover and had definitely lost whatever edge it had at the beginning oh yeah so for sure so, but, it, but there was no business plan uh that said okay we're gonna make this the funny magazine okay and, uh, uh, absolutely not. There was no plan for anything. And it was just, you know, it was just, again, just chance that threw together uh, certain personalities. I mean, there was uh, Lester and Janiowski and people who liked to be and, and me and people who were just you know, a little bit outrageous and funny and, and outspoken. And uh, so so yeah no business plan but, <laughs> but kismet which is, i think that the best businesses uh, work without you know work best without business plans and certainly creative businesses it's like exactly you know, yeah so it's hard to be creative when you're worried about metrics yeah and you know we were excited we would get the the, the uh, circulation folks would come in and say oh my god this i remember the you know, the, during the period when I was a managing editor, we we really grew the circulation, but it was kind of grew it by, you know, it was by being more and more outrageous. So, <laughs> so and you were only managing editor there for about a year. Probably. Yeah. Wow. I was only there like a year and a half. Wow. And and it's it's haunted me my whole life. Yeah. ever since. <laughs> but uh, yeah. And you yeah. it apparently, too. And, and me, it, yeah, yes, I, I was very excited to, you know, I knew there was something really cool going on there and, and I was, and I were, and I thought, boy, it'd be, it's too, too bad for all this fun writing and these, I mean, there was stuff to just make you laugh your ass off. And, and, and uh, a guy, I remember Rick Johnson, uh, you know, he was such a funny writer and Lester, of course. And, right. Uh, yeah. And, and um, and and I thought, oh man, this is all going to disappear in the mists of time. And uh, so I was I was really uh, happy and excited when like the doc the documentary happened. And, yeah, uh, and I was happy to be part of it. And uh, and you know. So at what point did you start writing books? Um, <laughs> I went back to New York from Detroit. I got in a you know I got in a 
I found an argument where I was completely on the wrong side <laughs> with, with the publisher and I, and we didn't duke it out or something. I just, I didn't like, he was, <laughs> he was, imagine this. He was withholding my paychecks cause I disappeared for like four days. <laughs> and, he, and he was like, he was like, no, fuck that. I'm going to hold your paycheck this week. Right. You disappeared for four days. And what I had done, I had a girlfriend in New York. I had run back to New York. So, uh, so, but I was indignant. How dare you? You know, and you know, imagine it was just what an asshole I am. And uh, and Kramer was an asshole too. But he, you know, I, I really think it was my it was, it was me in this case. And and so I just said, all right, well, fuck it. And I that night I packed up my six my car that I had bought for sixty five dollars, much as. Thomas, my character in Loudmouth does. Yeah. And I and I drove back to New York and a car just died in front of my girlfriend's house. Oh, and, uh, and that was that was fine. And and of course I you know, she had called me and said, Oh yeah, something's happening. And, and of course I got back there and she was with another dude. No. So I was like Fuck, I just threw away my job. <laughs> and it was a damn good job because you had a lot of freedom. Oh, yeah. And, you, you know, and a lot of creative, you know, ferment. And yeah, exactly. So, uh, so you, I went back to New York, and, you know, again, back to living on couches and stuff. And, and, uh, <laughs> and but, but people started tracking me down and, and like, like uh, Paul Nelson from certain was, was a great writer and, kind of a famous guy in, in rock circles gave, you know, kind of gave uh, a start to Dylan in that he gave Dylan all these folk records that Dylan then devoured and, yeah. and regurgitated. But anyways, he called me up and said, Hey, people seem to like my writing. I didn't personally like my writing, but uh, I thought I was way, you know, way not there yet. But one day, so I was kind of freelance writing career is actually offered the editorship of circus at one point turned it down thought no fuck it i'm i'm gonna be a big shot right and uh, one one day i'm at a a press party for ozzy osborne and um it, i don't know it was a solo record or black sabbath record it was like 76 77 i think okay and uh, and ozzy was like kind of on a chair in a dark corner of this ballroom and just completely nodded out, you know. Yeah, oh, yeah. And, and I said to the publicist, I said, I, I, I kind of like to meet Ozzy, and <laughs> and so she took me over there, and she had to like Ozzy. Oh, Ozzy. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, so we, you always went to press parties because there's no money for writing about rock and roll. Right. So there wasn't then, and there isn't now. I'm sure. Uh, is there rock and roll anymore? I don't know. But that's uh, another podcast. <laughs> so I, you, you go to press parties because you would get free food and more importantly, free booze. Oh, and yeah, so yeah. I'm on the you know buffet line get to get my free food. And, and the guy behind me is, is this guy, Richard Robinson, who was married to Lisa Robinson. They were both wrote for cream, but he was a really, uh, really interesting uh, guy. And, and one of the things, interesting things he did was produce Lou Reed's first solo album oh. before, just, just before the, um, you know, Walk on the Wild Side album. And, uh, but he said to me, Hey, uh, you know, somebody I know, an editor I know is looking for somebody to write an unauthorized biography of Kiss. Okay. And I had been writing all these articles about Kiss, uh, to, both to make money and to goof on Kiss. <laughs> and I would, and so I would do this shit where I would write negative article one week and 
in this publication and a positive article in another publication the next week and just could kind of go on like that. Okay. You know, all this, this stuff was always kind of, uh, in either case, it was way over exaggerated. I was yeah. just having, I was having fun. And, and uh, but the, he, he knew that I'd been doing all these articles. So he, so he gave me this guy's number and I, you know, quickly signed a book deal for this, for this kiss book with, uh, you know, it wasn't my dream book. I thought I was going to become a famous novelist. Right. And, uh, but, but that kiss book wound up, you know, we were, we were really pathetically broken. The kiss book wound up keeping us going for about three years. It sold wow. some, it sold hundreds of thousands of copies all around uh, several in Japan and America. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> and then you, you started, you, you've written other books. Um, well, then, then I wanted to get, you know, I wanted to do my, I was kind of embarrassed by the kids book. Oh, really? Okay. I, I was so excited when like, uh, this guy, the reviewer in the Austin American Statesman said, Hey, this is, this book is all tongue in cheek. It's really funny too. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, yes, dude, I was so I was so happy somebody had, had somebody had, figured it out. So somebody got it. So there was a few folks, but um, but then I wanted to do my my real book, and I was constantly sending out book proposals, and I I got an agent through having the Kiss book, and um, and uh, you know I, I had this proposal. I didn't even understand what the book was about. But it was a nonfiction <laughs> book, and it was kind of about the um, how rock and roll values and attitudes and and even, you know, objects and products and all had been kind of consumed, subsumed into the mainstream, into the media and into just really disparate things like even uh, what I have, the Sikorsky Helicopter Company, you know. Oh, so really? Just, so my proposal was that I was going to interview, like, for instance, the guy at Sikorsky and then you know, here's how what how that affected how rock and roll affected it. So it was called oh, wow. the noise notes from a rock and roll era, and uh, and this one, you know, the, the, my agent found this publisher. This was a really prestigious publisher, and uh, called Tickner and Fields. They were owned by Houghton Mifflin. Okay. They were an old they were an old imprint that they had decided to revive as their prestige, like their. You know, in this might be too inside book, but like Knopf is to Random House. It was so okay. this guy who used to run the Yale University Press before he did this, he fucking loved my my proposal. Oh wow. And he and he had me in, he says, I think you're you know, and, and my sample chapters I'd written and he says, Oh, I just think you're one of the most brilliant young writers I, I've, I've met in my career, and blah, blah. And, wow. and you know, again, I, I think I was 24 at this point. Oh, so, gosh. so, and they gave me, and they gave me a huge advance for the time. It was to be a huge advance today. It was like, it was like 15 grand. Which oh, was, wow. Uh, you know, you don't get that. You don't get that now. You didn't get that then. Right. But and to me, that was a that was money. That was a year's salary there. And they, uh, oh, and he, they were, they planned to put it out in hardcover and in paperback. Oh. And they were just, they had my head was so swollen by the time <laughs> I left that office that it was, you know, I was terrified. Holy shit! Now I got to live up to this. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I was, and I was, you know, and also swollen you know, ego. And, 
it was just guaranteed that that book was going to fail because, you know, it was like I was going to hit for the fences. I'm going to be fucking famous writer now, you know, and all that. And, yeah. uh, and well, that's exactly the way you don't become a famous writer. So, <laughs> so the, the book did eventually come out and, and I could, by the time, it, it took me three years to write it, oh, but, it's, wow. but which was, it was supposed to be done in a year and the publisher got mad and, and wanted to, you know, he wanted, I mean, he wanted to not give me the rest of my advance. And I, and this is how cheeky I was. And I think, wow, what balls I, I, I said to him, I said, well, I think you should pay me three times as much because I took three times as long to do it. And uh, so I ain't backing off. And so, you know, they gave me the rest of the money. Wow. But it, was, it was really a, that was really a painful experience, but that was, you know, that was kind of my serious book. It's better at the time. I thought, oh my god, I don't even know what this book's about. But <laughs> there's still people out there who really who like that book, and uh, it gets quoted places. And I think it's probably better than I think, but I can't bring myself to read it ever. Oh really? And then I wrote. And then I wrote. Uh, oh, I wrote a quickie, a book of about dead rock stars, and I called it. Uh, I called it either Dead Rock Stars or Rock and Roll Book of the Dead, and it was just profiles of stars who died. Okay. And, um, you know, but written in kind of an irreverent manner. And then when I gave it to the publisher, they decided they wanted to change the title to the title of a Billy Joel song. And I <laughs> said, you are not fucking oh. putting out a, I'm not, I don't want my name on a book that has a Billy, you know, they, so they call it all, only the good guy young and my name is on it. Uh. <laughs> but, you know, I did it for money and, you know. But I think you did get at least get the subtitle there, right? Yeah, yes, I did. Yeah. It does say, but it was like, no, not a Billy Joel song, just anything, but I'm not really... He's not even dead. Yeah, exactly. I mean, come on. <laughs> that was, you know, and then I did a few other weird things. I did some ghostwriting and stuff like that. So that's how I got into books. But I hadn't written a book in, oh, 30, more than 30 years until I wrote this one. How long did it, or at what point did you start writing this? Was it, did it take as long or longer than, than uh, the noise? Oh, shit. It took for, you know, because I was writing it, I, I had no, I didn't have an editor coming to my door to collect the manuscript like I did with the noise. <laughs> right. He, he like called me up and said, I'm coming down there and I'm going to, I want the manuscript. He says, wow. just give me what you got. Fortunately, I had, I'd written so much that I had an incredible <laughs> manuscript. But no, this thing, I, because I didn't have that guy, I was just writing it on my own. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, oh, it took like probably six years to, oh. to write it. And uh, I wrote way more than you see, obviously. I must have written twice as much or more. And, you know, I didn't even know what I was, was writing. I, I, I wrote a story about this. And it's in the... Uh, online publication lit hub which is you know literary kind of a thing yeah yeah and they 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 said oh right right you know what was one of the experiences that shaped your book and i i, I assumed that they were they were really they were kind of fishing for me to write some rock star stuff and uh, instead i told them the truth that the book started when i was walking out of my apartment in san francisco one day and a guy jumped off the 22-story roof and, you know, landed next to me and completely traumatized me. And, and then I kind of started doing my own therapy. I'll send you this, the story. I, I'm really proud of it. Yeah. But, um, 
and but I started doing my I was I couldn't sleep I was you know I, I was really just just really damaged and and uh and I just started writing and I wrote for 13 months and then at the end of 13 months I thought man I feel better and I, I feel and but I was writing like a maniac I was writing at work I was writing at nights and weekends I was just like ah. you were Lester banging bangsing exactly and um and at the after 13 months when it kind of seemed to subside and I realized it was some sort of self-therapy i was i really had been traumatized by this the idea of talking about the way i'm talking about it now or writing about it just was out of the question after it happened i couldn't right. couldn't talk to my wife about it, it was just like uh, and uh, so that's where the book started and at some point i thought wait a second what is all this stuff if i took out this chapter and uh, i didn't know that they were chapters if i took out yeah. this story <laughs> would would this be you know, would this be a book? Could this be a, can, you know, a book with some kind of arc? Right. So that's where it started. So it started with that. And then I spent five years rewriting. Oh, wow. Well, you just mentioned your wife, who is a fantastic yeah. photographer and artist. Yeah. And the book came out. Ronnie Hoffman. Yes. Yeah. Ronnie Hoffman. The, the book, immortal Ronnie Hoffman. The book actually was released and was came out on my 19th wedding anniversary october 6th no kidding yeah wow so. well happy anniversary thank you That's i appreciate it that was my present to you <laughs> I, you didn't get that i i the, the no. note wasn't in the book so i but i kind of figured dude it must have fallen out uh, i think out. i'm sure morgan mentioned something about it yeah but yeah. but you have a really interesting story about how you met your wife Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Ronnie and I, who have been married like about more than twice as long as you, uh, <laughs> yeah, I had come back to New York from Detroit, and I this girlfriend had thrown me over, you know, this girlfriend I came back to be with. It was like, what the fuck? Yeah. So I, I was in bad shape. So like, a couple of my friends said, a group of guys said, "Well, let's all go go out drinking." And so we went to a bar called Jimmy Days in the Village. It's on West Fourth Street, positively Fourth Street. Uh, there's always the <laughs> rock and roll connection. Yeah. And and, um, and and one of my friends was, was explaining to me in that kind of drunk logic way. He said, "You know, you know what you need. He's gonna. This is the big revelation. You know what you need." No, no, listen to me. You know what you need? And this this is in the in the book. I expropriated it for the book. But he says, you know, you need to find a new girlfriend. Was his big this is like and, that was it, uh, yeah, he was a genius. Yeah. And uh but I said, dude, god damn it, you're right. You know, you're just you're <laughs> and so and you know, within moments there was two girls walking past the window outside Jimmy Day's bar. And I spotted these two girls and I said, oh, you know, and I found one of them, you know, I was kind of interested, seemed interesting. And yeah. so I ran out the door of Jimmy Days and I grabbed this girl's arm. <laughs> now, I, I, as it says in the book, it was a it was a relatively chaste and polite grab, but it was a grab nonetheless. <laughs> and I would be in a Me Too dungeon right now <laughs> if, if I did that today. But so I grabbed this girl, hey, girls. And she said, get your hands off me. <laughs> and uh, and when they kept they kept walking. So I I walked backwards for blocks because I'm a you know, I'm just a crazy, obsessive dude, you know. Right. Uh, and uh, 
I walk backwards. I say, where are you girls going? You know, let me buy you a drink. Come on, blah, blah, blah. The other girl was, um, she was wearing a cutoff blue jean jacket and uh, she was all really muscly. And she had the, um, she had just gotten a, a tattoo on her forearm. Oh, all encircling a, a kind of a, most of a sleeve on her forearm. Oh, wow. And at this time, and it was just, shoot, just right out of the tattooist, I found out later. But and at this time, tattooing was illegal in New York. Oh, in New York City, it was, if you can even imagine, and, and wow. tattooed women were real, that was for the circus. Right, yeah. <laughs> a girl with a giant tattoo, and, and she, she was tough. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm a little intimidated by her but her friend was her friend uh her friend was was much more kind of uh she would neither of them were paying any attention to me but right. uh but her friend was more i found her more appealing and so i'm backing up down the street where are you girls going let me buy you a drink blah 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 you know one of them the nun her, not helen helen was the, the the one with the tattoos okay and is she but the other one said um Oh, well, we're going to the bottom line, which was a big club in oh, New yeah. York. Yeah. It was a famous, uh, a famous uh, nightclub and all these rock acts would, you know, that was kind of a, a showcase place. And yeah. um, so I said, you go to the bottom line. I said, oh, you know, I said, who are you going to see? And they said, uh, and, you know, this, this, this was all halting conversation, but she said, uh, oh, we're going to see Elliot Murphy. Now, Elliot Murphy, I don't know if you know him. Yeah. He's still, he's, he's now doing concert. He lives in in Paris and he now does is doing concerts for the quarantine era and it's kind of interesting oh, cool. and, but, but Elliot Murphy was a, a what they called a new Dylan he was going to be you know he was one of the guys that that the press had had uh, anointed as the next Dylan right and, yeah uh, and so he was you know more or less a folk singer or at least that's what they had, had done with him but but he, you know he was on RCA I knew I knew of him because Ed Ward had taught me a lot of stuff about music and had played me Elliot Murphy records. Okay. When, uh, back when he, I, he had started, like I said, when I said I knew nothing about music, it was Ed Ward and John Morthland and then Lester Banks who made me, who taught me everything. And, um, and, and so I, I knew Elliot Murphy. So I said to the girl, I said, and, and I knew Elliot Murphy since I'd been at Cream, I knew all the publicists and I, and I could get into all the clubs free. And, you know, it was just, so I said, shit i said uh i can get you in free he was i knew he was on rca yeah he said i can get you in free uh and this girl said um well we're already getting in free oh like, what the fuck you know just stabbed <laughs> in the heart it can't win and, and and so uh i said well why are you getting in free and she says well uh helen is a singer she went under the name Helen Wheels. But she uh, she actually wrote uh, some songs for Blue Oyster Cult. Oh wow! Uh, she went out with Albert Bouchard for a, a while. Oh, uh, former and, guest. Yeah, yeah. Well, Albert knew that. Uh, and then she says, you know, and, and I'm a photographer. She's a singer. I'm a photographer. And I go, you're a photographer. I go. You know, and how many people are there in New York, right? And how many, you know, there's 8 million people in New York. There's 4 million women. And, you know, 2 million of them are photographers. So, right. <laughs> uh, so I said, well, you're a photographer. I said, well, what's your name? And she said, uh, Ronnie Hoffman. And I said, Ronnie Hoffman? I'm Duncan from Cream. I sent you a check last week. <laughs> which was... 
which was one of my duties as managing editor was to send out the checks. And I go, uh, so it's like, so then after about 20, 30 minutes of being away, I managed to, I got the girls to come back to the bar with me. Oh, and, wow. uh, and uh, we all get, we had drinks and then we went to, then, uh, that was Ronnie, uh, Ronnie and I, and, and, and Helen wheels and, and another one of my friends, we went to see Elliot Murphy at the bottom line. Wow. For free. And, yeah. and, uh, and I got thrown out because I was being loud. I was being a loud mouth at the bar. I was, I, you know, I was trying to impress the girls and I'm, and I'm, I don't know whatever I'm drunk. And I'm right. Drunk. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, so eventually, so, you know, Ronnie said, well, you know, I was I was having trouble walking, so she she says, "Well, you can come over to my place. You know, it's not far from here." And so she helped walk me there, and and things led to things. And I woke up the next morning; the phone was ringing in Ronnie's apartment. Okay, and and she goes and answers it, and um, and it's our mutual friend John Mortland, and he's calling her specifically to tell her. He said, "You know, this guy came back to town." to New York from uh, cream from Detroit, Robert Duncan, I think you would really like him. Uh, and she said, he's right here. So that's, that's the story. And I, I, I changed the names in the, in the, in the, in the novel, but I didn't, uh, but the stories, that's the story. That is an amazing story. I love that. Yeah, it, was, it was amazing. Yeah. And then, and we've been together for forever. And you guys, we're married and went on a honeymoon with Blue Oyster Cult. Yeah, we got married about nine months later, and and then and then I I uh, we were well. The, anyways, I had an appendicitis, like we, so we we oh. whatever we didn't have any money for a honeymoon. But a year later, we were we um, Ronnie and her old boyfriend before me, Richard Meltzer, had written wrote um, lyrics for Blue Oyster Cult, as did Sandy Perlman. Yeah, and, uh, of course. Dharma wrote lyrics, uh, but Ronnie and her old boyfriend had lived in the Blue Oyster Cult house wow. uh, out in Long Island when they were still soft white underbelly, and even the Stock Forest group, which preceded oh, yeah. that. Yep. And um, so she she knew them all, and I had gotten to know them because I had liked them and I had written about them for Cream, so I had gotten to be friendly with them. Okay. And uh, and so when. And, and so and some of them were at our wedding, in fact. Wow. Some of the boys are called and, and the dictators and Lester and oh, one of Tish and Snooky, you know, and it kind of, it was kind of a cool, it was, it was a cool thing. And, uh, but the, 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 after we got a year later, after I got over my appendicitis and, and all this, uh, the, Sandy Perlman, who was their manager, Ronnie was designing a, uh, a book, a uh, song book for the boys who called. And they said, well, why, Sandy said, why don't you come to Europe? We'll, we'll pick it up. Come to, they were going on tour in Europe. So we went to Europe for a month with the Blue Oyster Cult and, and two, two weeks of that was with them. And then, and wow. then Sandy gave us the rental car and said, here, you can just take the car and go wherever you want. Wow. Uh, and, you know, we, we became very good friends with Sandy and, and, and before he died, we had became his, uh, we became his uh, conservators oh, because wow. he was he, he had an aneurysm and he was incapacitated. Yeah. So, uh, so I mean that it, it's amazing to me. That, so the, the so we knew Sandy for fifty years or something. Wow. 
and um, the Blue Oyster Cult. So I knew the boy. I've known the Blue Oyster Cult for forty years. That's years. And, oh my gosh! And, uh, in fact, I've just been I've been communicating this week with uh, Buck Dharma, uh, oh, some cool. stuff, and we saw we saw Albert a few years ago. Oh, that's awesome! And and we had a um, I know we had a we had a memorial service for Sandy Perlman when he did die, which was about three years ago. Um, yeah, in our uh, in our bar at our you know we have this design and ad agency our company and 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 uh and albert came and played and oh, uh awesome. oh greg uh greg from the angry samoans uh, what's his name greg uh oh yeah greg no, turner yes greg turner for the angry samoans angry and patty Samoa smith and lenny k and we had like you know there's maybe 50 60 people in the room that's wow. what the room holds and and there's there's Patty and and uh, so anyways yes. and angry Samoans and the angry Samoans yeah. <laughs> those are those guys are great they're great he's he's great yeah Greg Turner is great um, so anyways yes well, we get deep long history with with the with the Blue Oyster Cult oh um, man I mean Ronnie designed one of their album covers and, uh, oh that's right Spectres with Godzilla on it yes which and, was. The the lyrics to that were inspired kind of by Patty Smith. She has a does does she have a song on it? Well, she was supposed to. Sandy, uh, from what I understood from from talking with, with Albert, was that uh, Buck and Patty were supposed to get together to write something oh, yeah. with Godzilla, but uh, she had to go on tour or something and, and couldn't. So he ended up. They they wanted to yeah. write a song about Godzilla. I thought it'd be a great idea, and she wasn't available, yeah. so he ended up doing it anyway. But yeah. so. I remember, you know, we became very uh, close with Sandy, Sandy Perlman, who manager, lyricist, yeah. uh, producer for the Blue Oyster Cult, and and basically kind of uh, there the Sengali who who cooked up the the name of the band comes from a poem he wrote. Yeah. And uh, say, I remember that Sandy came over to our, our apartment the night he, he was working on Spectres. And he said, um, he says, oh, I just bought the rights to, uh, to use uh, Godzilla as a song title um, on the new album. And I said, yeah, well, how much do you pay? He said, $10,000. I'm like, $10,000? What the fuck? <laughs> you know, that, I mean, you know, in 1977, that was a lot of money. Yeah. And, uh, it seemed like a lot of money, but, but, and I, I just like, really, you know, and I wasn't into like campy monster movies and all that stuff. Ronnie is. Yeah. And I'm like, I just like, whatever. Dude. <laughs> I said, you're crazy. And, uh, you know, so he wasn't. <laughs> so, all right. I, I did read on your company's websites that you've flown on a private jet with Keith Richards. You have jammed, true, true. jammed with Blue Oyster Cult. Oh yeah, I forget about that. And I reminded Albert of that one day. We were we, Albert was living out in like Connecticut or something. I think it was Albert's house. Well, Albert was married, living out in Connecticut. He had a kid, his wife Karen, who was really sweet. Um, and uh, and we went for a barbecue. We were invited for a barbecue, and it was like the band and us, and there wasn't really anybody else. And so they started. Albert had a studio in his garage. I'm pretty sure it was Albert's house. And um, and uh, and they started playing songs, and I and I just started singing, oh, and, and wow. they were like, "Wow, you're." 
you're a good singer, yeah, which, which, which I, which I was still am. Yeah. But, uh, but, um, yeah. So yeah. And you also serenaded Sammy Hagar and Liza Minnelli at, at different times, but yes, I did. That, yes, I did. How did that come Sam- about? Well, Sammy Hagar came about because we, <laughs> at our, at our agent, at our agency, which we do design work and we do advertising work and we've been around now, we've been around 30 years Wow! and, uh, in San Francisco. And we, at one point we were doing, we had, uh, we were doing, uh, some radio ads for Sammy Hagar's, you know, tequila. Oh yeah. And, and, and so Sammy came and, and my, one of my partners had, had written the, the spot and it had, it had singing in it it had a it had a jingle or it was a or it was a probably a comic jingle uh because uh, it was we were again we're yeah, my partner makes fun of everything too so uh <laughs> and, and so but he he went on vacation and sammy wanted to come over and you know hear the new spot so i had to i had to sing the new radio spot to sammy acapella oh, wow. in the uh in the in our conference room oh so that my was, gosh that was Sammy and, and Liza Minnelli. I mean, there's... Is that the infamous is, Liza Minnelli, Farrah Fawcett story? Well, that's not that story. Oh, okay. But, but it is... It's the <laughs> same era and participants. But, oh, boy. But, but Liza, Liza... You know, I, I never... I never let, you know, rock stars or anybody... I, maybe because I was arrogant or, or something. I, I would never let them... I would never kiss ass, you know? So, uh, I got that we, feeling. Yeah. So my, um, my, my, one of my childhood friends married Liza Minnelli. And at the time in New York, that was a big fucking deal. Oh yeah. And so you could do shit like, which we did one night uh, among many other wild things, you know, she could call up a, a, a supper club where they had a, you know, piano and say, Hey, can we take over the place after hours? Wow. And so we would go in and there, and I remember getting up and singing. Yeah. So I said, Oh, let me get up on the stage. And I sang New York, New York, and, <laughs> <laughs> which was, which was her signature song. Yeah. So she was not, she didn't like that. No, she didn't. And, <laughs> and, she, she doesn't have a sense but, of humor. Yeah, she she did, but you know, she she actually did. She was she was nice, nice, plenty nice to us. And it was the it was the you know the height of the cocaine epidemic in New York, and yeah. so it was like you know they were always coked up. Um, we couldn't afford cocaine, but <laughs> when we go to their house, there was there was a big fishbowl of it on the on the bar. So uh, <laughs> so there was lots of that and. Uh, Oh yeah, you, you want me to tell you the Farrah Fawcett story? Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I'm I familiar with timing it. Is. I've got no time limit at all. So, well, the Farrah Fawcett story is that um, when my friend turned, my friend who married Liza turned thirty, or was about to turn thirty. Yes, he asked to. Uh, he was a guy who came from modest circumstance. You know, he was a scholarship boy at school and all this stuff. Yeah. So. But, you know, he, so this was his entry into the big time. Um, and he has said to her, can, can she give him a 30th birthday party where she invites all her friends from Holly? Right. Okay. And so of course, it's Liza Minnelli, who's the daughter of, of Judy Garland and Vincent Minnelli knows right. everybody in Holly, the director of Vincent Minnelli, uh, knows everybody in Hollywood. So, 
so and we were invited because we i was we were ronnie and i were together and we were i, I was his childhood friend i'd known him since sixth grade or something okay and uh, so and so we went to the party and it was like fucking just unbelievable you know here's here comes lucille ball uh it was only a few months before her death but oh. who has lucille ball at a party i mean it's and not it, like you know it, you know it's, it's i love lucy yeah so here comes lucille ball and then at another point i discover oh shit that's gregory peck this is in her new york apartment you know and oh. as you come in there's a portrait by andy warhol of her mother judy garland and you know it's God. just all sorts of shit like that i think andy were always there martin scorsese was there um uh at one point you know and it was lots of drinking i mean for me lots of drinking yeah. <laughs> and uh so i was just raising hell but at one point i'm, I'm talking uh, i'm talking to um I'm talking to Harvey Keitel, the actor, the actor that was in a lot of oh, yeah. Scorsese movies. And he was in, you know, he was in Pulp Fiction, you know. He yeah, was, Mr. Wolf. Mr. Wolf. And um, so I love Harvey Keitel. So I'm chatting with Harvey Keitel over here. And over here is Meatloaf, you know. <laughs> Do people remember Meatloaf? Yeah. So Meatloaf. And we're, we're just chatting Meatloaf's wife. And we're just chatting, chatting. Mrs. Chatting, Loaf. Like, Mrs. Love. So you do, uh, yeah, I don't remember what her name is, <laughs> but it was funny. Uh, the meatloaf is, is I guess trying to lose weight or is supposed right. to lose weight. Cause he was a pretty hefty guy, right? And, but he kept, you know, scarfing hors d'oeuvres off the tray <laughs> as it passed. And he was just wolf, you know, scarfing them down. And his wife would do, I think his name is Marvin. I think so. Yeah. Marvin. And she'd slap his hand and say, you're not supposed to do that. And, uh, and slap his hand. And this is just cracking me up. Yeah. You know, big old meatloaf. His wife is slapping him down. Yeah. So that was just, that, that's just the flavor of it. At one point, at one point, um, a little a te young teenager went through the party. And I'm like, who the fuck is this? Um, and, and, uh, and so I'm, you know, I'm checking him out and I realized the teenager is, you know, he's got dark hair and he's, but he's got stage makeup on. And I realized it was Al Pacino. Oh my God. <laughs> so Al Pacino looked like a 14 year old boy. He's so little, you know, he's, oh, wow. he's short and he's petite and he just looked like in, in, in his stage makeup. He, I thought he was like a 14 year old boy. He'd just oh. come from. Yeah. being on broadway so uh i i thought yeah i was wow. like wow and um my wife says wasn't michael jackson there but i i i don't think so i don't think so but he might have been <laughs> there was just i can't remember everybody who, who was there right at one point, i'm standing there talking to meatloaf <laughs> and i hear a knock and we're near the door and i hear knocking at the door nobody's going to answer it so you know, I'm going to go answer the door at Liza Minnelli's house. <laughs> Why and not? so I, I answered the door and, and, you know, I had written this kiss book and I'd written all these crazy articles about kiss and who's there, but Gene Simmons. And now oh my I, I, I can only imagine his horror um, because <laughs> he's going to, you know, the A plus Hollywood party of all time, right? In right. New York city. And, and, and here's me, this little, this, this guy, this punk ass guy who's been making fun of him and all right. that shit. And so he just, he points at me and I point back at him, you know? And so eventually he says, well, let me introduce you my date. 
and his date, the, his date, he didn't need to introduce his date because his date looked exactly like who she was with her <laughs> giant smile and big hair. And it was uh, Diana Ross. Oh, my so God. He was dating Diana Ross at the time. Jeez. So so I let them in and, and the party went on. And um, again, I can't remember who the fuck was there, but any Hollywood person you could think of was there. And so, you know, it rolls around around five o'clock in the morning. Again, there's a pattern here. I, I'm still drinking at five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah. And finally, my, my, my friend Mark, it, it's down to me and Ronnie and Mark and Liza and, um, and Farrah Fawcett is there. And Ryan O'Neill, and I'll tell you that at one point I was cruising around the party and I, I just went into, the, you know, Liza's and Mark's bedroom and there was um, Ryan O'Neill sitting in a chair in the bedroom and, and he had the, the biggest mound of cocaine you've ever seen on the table next to him. And I said, oh, hey, Ryan, I said, uh, can I have something? He said, don't have enough. Sorry. <laughs> oh, you prick. You know, and uh Although, as somebody observed recently, they said, um, they said, you know what? By the amount of cocaine that that man consumed, he probably didn't have enough. Uh, but I'm telling you, it had, it had topographical features, this, this mound of cocaine. And um, so he, uh, so anyways, it, it, the, the, five in the morning, it's down to Farrah Fawcett and Ryan O'Neill are there. And so Mark is bugging me to leave. And so finally it, t- it takes a long time to get me to leave. And so finally I'm like, all right, fuck it. I'll leave. And I said, but I gotta get my jacket and I'm looking around for my jacket. I can't find my jacket. So now I'm making kind of a, a show out of not finding my jacket and I'm yelling who stole my fucking jacket. Blah, blah, blah. And it was just, you know, it's just some, uh, it was just a black windbreaker nothing, okay. nothing jacket. And then Farrah Fawcett comes out of the bathroom and she says, is this, holds up looking for the camera <laughs> she holds up and says is this your jacket and and it, and it was and i'm like oh fuck Sarah! yeah you found my jacket and so i should explain that when i was a kid i went to summer camp and i was certified as a uh, red cross junior lifesaver okay and the and the last thing you had to do and to pass your certification is carry this big greasy man who was much heavier than you out of the lake you know imagine you save somebody right so i learned this fireman's carry from junior life saving and and i then as i got older i started to apply it in bars so i would go find the biggest person in a bar and i would say hey let me let me let me let me pick you up. And I, I, I was at the time I was skinnier and I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't a big muscle man, but it was, uh, so I would pick up big people and I'd run around the bar and that was my kind of, that was my bar gag. Oh, yeah. and, uh, so it, it turned into, so I ran to Farrah Fawcett and I grabbed her and threw her up on my back. This is to express my gratitude for finding the jacket. <laughs> yes. And I, uh, and I ran around the apartment and I'm jumping and screaming and I'm, 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 I'm you know, I'm, just, I'm playing it up as much as I can. Right. And, and Mark is saying, Hey dude, come on, come on, you know, give her back and all this give stuff. her back, you know? So, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, what, what do you, you think that's going to stop me? No, that, and, and Ryan is saying to Mark, 
but coked up Ryan is saying, uh, no man, no man, don't, don't, don't rattle him. Don't rattle him. Like, like I'm like actually uh, nuts yes. and I'm going to jump out the window with her or something. Oh, so, God. so I'm running around. So then now I'm just further emboldened and inflamed and I grabbed Liza and I put Liza up on my shoulder. No, my back, and I got each of them. Uh, Farrah Fawcett, who was like the poster girl of the, she was huge at that time. Yeah, and she's she's and she weighed about you know seventy pounds. Yeah. And she had her little um, brown leather micro skirt on, you know, and so and so I got Liza up on the shoulder <laughs> and Farrah on on that one. I think it's actually the shoulders I had them on, and I ran around the place. With uh, jumping over furniture and and you know their marble floors oh, and, and and just kept going and 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 you know I always do things too long, yeah. uh, including tell this story I'm sure but but I finally came back and I, I you know is is when they stopped asking me to I finally came back and put the the ladies down and then I took my jacket and I and I left you know yeah. <laughs> and then um, the P.S. on this story is that about. Oh, maybe six weeks later, we were we weren't invited to that much at Liza's <laughs> house after that. But but they were they were having a dinner for somebody or birthday dinner or at, a, at, a, at a kind of casual restaurant on the Upper West Side, and and they had like twelve people, and um, everybody was there. Robin Williams was there. Oh, and wow. Robin, I remember Robin Williams arrived, and he was there. Like there's like a bush in front. And he did like a whole shtick about coming out of the bush and, and this. So anyways, he was more there. cocaine and, stories there. Yeah, no doubt. And, and so the the only two seats, uh, Ryan and Pharaoh were invited, but the only two seats were at this point, everybody's there where the seats were opposite me, me and Ronnie. And <laughs> so Farrah Foster wound up having to sit opposite me. And I, and when she sat down, I said, Oh, Hey, Farrah, remember me? And she's like, yes. And then, Nothing. <laughs> so uh, that's the postscript on that. Anyways, that's, that's, that's uh, you know, that's, that's a great story. Fawcett. That is Fawcett. a great story. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's really true. And, you know, and I have a witness for the parts that I, my wife was there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, although I, I'm not sure we were married, but anyways, it was, oh, yeah, it was man. fun. We had lots of weird adventures with, with Mark and Liza. Oh, and, man. And, and, and fish bowls of cocaine. <laughs> well, that's how most good stories need to start. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've kept you quite a while. I mean, I really thank you so much. Oh, for, I've kept you. Oh, I no, this, I'm, I'm having a blast listening to the stories. And uh, <laughs> where can people find the book? The book is uh, Loudmouth by by me. Robert Duncan is a... Is, uh, you know, most bookstores will have it. It's online at, you know, bookshop.org, which is the indie thing. And, and, and it's at, at Big Bad Amazon and it's, yes. it's at Barnes and Noble and it's, it's online. It's in bookstores. It's everywhere. And now, uh, and it's got, there's a Kindle edition and there's a, oh, cool. uh, a paperback edition. And now there's an audio book read by me, recorded in my studio. And that's awesome. Uh, it's pretty good too. Well, you got uh, a great voice with little music interludes by my my brother's a musician, so oh, I got cool. him to do the little uh, you know between chapters thing, and it's kind of fun. Yeah, so you can, and that's available on Apple Books right now. It's supposed to be available on <laughs> on Amazon, but I, we don't know why they're 
so slow on uh, putting up the audio book. So, so yes, it's available everywhere. It's, and you can come and there, the links to see it are on, I have a website called duncanwrites.com, W R I T E S. And it has the links to buy the book everywhere. And it also has more bullshit about me and by me. So, and as links to some of this stuff and as links to your social media, I believe, it right? does it does yeah so they can fo- yeah. people can follow you see what you're up to uh please do please do is there uh, active anything else coming down the pike now any new books in the works i got a couple of books i've been working on but Excellent. uh but they're uh they're and they're way different i got another novel and another nonfiction thing way different but cool you know they're, they're a ways away so oh yeah and you know uh i got approached I got approached to, to make a movie of Loudmouth. So oh, awesome. Uh, I'm sitting there one night and uh, minding my own business and an email comes in and says, Hey, I want to do a book of your, I mean, a movie of your thing. And he's a screenwriter and a site. I thought, well, this is going to be some bullshit thing. And I look him up. He's like a, you know, a real deal screenwriter. And oh, so, wow. so there's lots of things can happen in Hollywood. You know, as my, my friend who's a screenwriter down there says, yeah, you know, yeah. it was very, very slow, but it was like, <laughs> I'm like, really, you want to make a movie of my book? And he, he, so we had a whole long thing where he explained to me what he wanted to do. And oh, wow. That was kind of cool. That's awesome. That is yeah. really cool. So yeah, that was kind of cool. A fairly accurate interpretation of, of your story. Your life is now possibly going to be a movie. The guy's working on a script, That's he says. Awesome. So that is awesome. Yeah, yeah, and actually, he told me he wants to take a certain, he t- a certain chunk out of the book, and and it includes it includes Ronnie, and he says so. Yeah, he wants to. We'll both be at it. Oh, nice! That's awesome. So, well, man, yeah. I would love to invite you back on. Maybe we can get you and Morgan on at the same time. We can do uh, oh, anytime. Awesome. Maybe we could do something. I'll, I'll tell you what. What a I do. Cage match. Me and oh. me and Morgan. <laughs> a go. virtual cage match. Oh, that would be brilliant. I, I, I'll re- I'll be the uh, Mills Lane. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and I will let you go. Thank you so much. It's been a blast. All right. Thank you, Mark. What's we'll up? Anytime. Give me a holler.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 